0: But that said, it is remarkable and at times disturbing, the amount of data being collected on individuals, and the ability to use that for law enforcement and intelligence purposes. And there's a huge amount of information we're all leaving in terms of digital breadcrumbs. And governments have gotten much better at collecting that and putting it together.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, the entirely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. I'm your host, Julia, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Indy. You're listening to another installment of our Foreign Policy Toolbox series, where we unravel the mysteries of the most important institutions, concepts, and policies that decision-makers actually use to implement foreign policy. September 11, 2001 permanently reshaped counterterrorism policy in the U.S. and abroad, with more than 260 U.S. government organizations created or reorganized to focus on terrorism-related issues in the last 20 years. In this episode, we'll examine the history of counterterrorism in the U.S., including what practices and threats look like today, 20 years on after 9-11. Specifically, we'll discuss counterterrorism both domestically and abroad, including partnerships between the U.S. and some unlikely allies. Finally, we'll take a look at what assumptions and practices should change to better counter today and tomorrow's threats. Joining us today is Professor Daniel Byman.
2: Daniel Byman is a senior fellow in the Center for Middle East Policy at Brookings, where his research focuses on counterterrorism and Middle East security. He previously served as the research director of the center. He is also a professor in the Georgetown University Walsh School of Foreign Services Security Studies program. Previously, Byman served as a staff member with the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks on the United States, or the 9-11 Commission, and the joint 9-11 inquiry staff of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Professor
1: Byman, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. To get us started, is there a universally agreed upon definition of terrorism? And who in the U.S. or internationally, say, gets to designate who or what entities are terrorists or terrorist organizations?
0: There is no internationally agreed upon definition of terrorism. In fact, there isn't even agreement... Within the U.S. government, if you look at different agencies like the State Department um, or the Drug Enforcement Agency um, or the U.S. Criminal Code, you'll see different definitions as to what constitutes terrorism. Uh, These definitions are shaped politically. They're shaped by bureaucratic interests um, and by different analytic logics. And this lack of a common definition, of course, has complicated efforts to uh, fight terrorism.
1: What is the process to designate a terrorist organization in the U.S. or internationally then, since there's not really a agreed-upon definition? And what does it mean for a group once they're designated?
0: So there are different designations within the U.S. system. And most people, when they talk about designation, they're really focusing on foreign terrorist groups. And uh, by statute, the State Department, in consultation with several other agencies, is um, supposed to designate a list of foreign terrorist organizations and present them to congress Um, in addition the treasury department designates um, individuals frequently uh, for additional sanctions Um, internationally the united nations has passed resolutions that effectively designate the islamic state and al-qaeda and their various branches as well Um, so there are different possibilities on this Um, designation Uh, as a foreign terrorist organization in the U.S. comes with a host of penalties. And these largely are about uh, prohibitions on providing support to a terrorist group. So you can't donate money. You can't uh, do propaganda on their behalf. uh, You can't donate your time. Uh, But also, very importantly, um, banks, for example, cannot provide financial services. So you're depriving The group of a range of support that it might otherwise have. Now, to say the obvious, many of these groups don't really care about that too much. So it's not like the Islamic State was heavily dependent on the American banking system, um, or is terribly upset to be designated. But the hope is that you reduce the number of people who are engaging with the groups both wittingly and unwittingly.
1: So you say that one of the strategies is to prevent Um, people from engaging with the group. So are there any key strategies that the U.S. employs to do this or to track down recruitment or any other kind of
0: aid? Uh, This depends on the group itself and how much of a threat they are. So there are some groups that are on the U.S. list that are not U.S. priorities, even though they're considered to be terrorist groups, and other groups like the Islamic State, to say the obvious, uh, that are priorities. And here there's a, a host of um, legal and intelligence mechanisms. So requiring reporting from banks, for example, but a lot of it um, really comes down to uh, classic intelligence gathering on the group itself and its supporters. And from there, um, seeing if they're engaged with more reputable um, businesses or more reputable banks and so on. Um, and if so, um, trying to stop that support.
2: So you mentioned that the U.S. has different priorities in terms of different terrorist groups. So are there ways to categorize terrorist organizations based on how they're organized or funded? And do organizations vary more by region or within regions?
0: So you can categorize terrorist groups in lots of different ways. And uh, it really depends on what you're trying to achieve. So if you're the Department of Treasury, uh, trying to understand the financing mechanisms makes the most sense because that's the instrument you have. Um, Other people who are looking at Homeland Security might focus on whether groups are organized in a top-down manner, meaning that uh, a call to attack is going to come from overseas, usually, uh, versus bottom-up, where you might have individual members who act on their own with very little guidance. Um, So the categorization you want really depends on the types of problems that you hope to solve. Um, And I'm sorry, could you repeat your second question? Oh,
2: I just wanted to ask, do organizations vary more by region or within regions, like by type of organization?
0: Organizations vary um, depending in part on their ideology and their fundraising structure, but a lot really depends on who they're fighting against. So there are many groups that have a kind of significant uh, leadership cadre, uh, top-down organization, but that's because they're fighting against a weak government and they're able to maintain a degree of unity. Uh, Despite pressure, Um, some groups have a similar structure because they have an external haven. Uh, Others, however, are forced to decentralize not because they want to, but because they're very vulnerable and they're afraid that their leadership will easily be identified and killed if they stay in a highly centralized form. So, one of the biggest factors determining organization is the government that groups are fighting against.
1: And to kind of understand a little more about the history of counterterrorism in the U.S., has terrorism always been a significant foreign policy tool um, here, or did, say, 9-11 spur this development um, in the U.S. and abroad?
0: Counterterrorism has been an element of U.S. foreign policy. Um, I would say it really began in the late 1960s, early 1970s. Uh, However, it's really a sideshow to what most policymakers would have considered their priorities especially during the cold war uh, it become begins to become more important in the late 1990s but of course the 9-11 attacks both because of their scale and because they occur on u.s soil uh, really change things and that puts counterterrorism front and center for u.s policy where this was the number one pilot Um, priority in the Bush administration, but it remained very important in the Obama and Trump administrations, even though both for different reasons tried to de-emphasize it.
2: So just continuing along this line of thought, um, what has been the U.S. counterterrorism policy abroad since 9-11, or just in general um, in history?
0: There's no single facet of U.S. counterterrorism policy that dominates. Uh, Rather, it's a combination of instruments that together... I think produce a fairly decisive effect Uh, so one is trying to reduce the degree of freedom terrorist groups have to operate in various havens and so part of this was the invasion of afghanistan and the overthrow of the taliban Uh, but it's also going after many havens in places like yemen and somalia and other countries Um, in addition to going after havens there's a global intelligence and law enforcement effort against these groups, where you might have, just to pick an example, you might have a raid by Moroccan police that discover an extremist, and they look at the individual's phone, and they find that there are phone calls to Paris. Uh, from there, the U.S. government conveys that information to uh, French intelligence, which looks at the individual suspect, might arrest him, might look at his Uh, phone and computer and finds connections to people in Germany and the United Arab Emirates. The U.S. government works with those services and may find financial transfers, for example, from those countries to Indonesia and on and on and on. And this is a very methodical, um, somewhat dull process frequently uh, where you're constantly trying to track connections of individuals. But it's been hugely effective in wrapping up large networks and forcing these groups to minimize their coordination with other parts of the group and broader community Um, in addition there is greater homeland defense Uh, if you've flown on an airplane the last 20 years you know there's a lot more security Uh, there are a lot of efforts to both work with the american muslim community but also monitor um, the broader american population with regard to uh, terrorist activity and none of these by itself has greatly reduced terrorism but together they make it far harder For terrorist groups to operate and, in my view, have proven especially effective in stopping terrorist attacks on the U.S. homeland.
1: Professor, you just now mentioned that there were also global efforts, that's not just the U.S. um, alone, working on counterterrorism. And I'm assuming that that also means that it's not just individual countries working alone. I'm wondering if you could kind of briefly touch on whether or not Um, there are like international groups or organizations that also work on this and um, how they contribute to the efforts?
0: International organizations do contribute in several ways. Uh, One is that there are uh, some financial restrictions that um, international bodies have put on working with groups like Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, that are designed to inhibit fundraising. Um, And more broadly, there are diplomatic efforts to coordinate, uh, states, uh, by themselves, these are not particularly important parts of the global counterterrorism apparatus. The vast majority of work is still done, not by international organizations, but by state governments. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the international efforts legitimize the state action. States can say, we're just acting on behalf of the United Nations resolution. Uh, there's a group coordinating internet companies that relies on the United Nations list. Um, to uh, stop terrorist content. So these international organizations, um, their own efforts are limited, but they provide a degree of legitimation for many others to take very effective action against terrorist groups.
1: I see. And also, in order to fight against al-Qaeda and the Taliban, the U.S. itself has had to work with um, some interesting and unlikely allies. I know you've written um, that not only has the U.S. relied on warlords They've created them. So that's such an interesting thought for me. So what are warlords and why have they been used as allies in the fight against terrorism?
0: We can think of warlords as um, powerful individuals that have their own independent military force, independent of the state, that are active usually in a local area. And sometimes they're in opposition to the state. Sometimes They're working with it to a rough degree, but uh, what I would stress is their degree of local autonomy. Um, They often are not, and usually are not elected or otherwise have traditional means of legitimacy. Um, And like it or not, uh, these types of individuals are found throughout the world. And they're especially common in weak states, and those are often the states where terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State are found. Uh, So in many places, if you wanna go after these groups on the ground, The state itself is not a particularly good partner. So if you want to work in Somalia, for example, the Somali government doesn't control much of the territory in its country. Uh, So you often want to work with other local actors, and those happen to be warlords. There are a host of human rights problems that come in. There are problems in terms of trying to create that strong national government. But on a day-to-day basis, many of these warlords are important counterterrorism partners.
1: So on that note, it sound, it does sound like working with warlords, for example, um, could increase or decrease the ability to legitimize a central government that's already in a country. I'm wondering if, for example, that is a risk or are there any other potential um, risks that come with working with warlords? And how successful was the U.S. in working with them?
0: As you said, one serious risk is that you make it harder for the central government to Uh, be built to legitimize itself. One of the things we talk about when we talk about the strength of a government is whether it has a legitimacy uh, with the population, whether it controls the use of force. And almost by definition, uh, a warlord is a challenge to that. It's a rival for the use of force. And when you make that stronger, you're making the central government weaker. Um, In addition, because these warlords are elected, they often um, commit human rights abuses. And by giving them guns we're giving them money you're making them stronger as well and this proved to be a huge problem for the united states in afghanistan where warlords were part of the effort to go after the taliban but they also alienated much of the population in areas where they were active so this can be a tremendous challenge
2: so i'd like to move a little bit more to talking about u.s counterterrorism efforts domestically so in domestic politics, we've heard both the American left and right push for domestic organizations and groups to be designated as terrorist organizations. So what is different between designating an American group compared to a foreign group? And what makes the former, as in making as in designating an American group as a terrorist group, difficult
0: to do? So traditionally, uh, uh, counterterrorism has focused on designating groups overseas for several reasons. Uh, so one is that there's a concern about banning any American organization because of its beliefs. And there's a fear that you could easily end up simply taking groups with unpopular agendas. And today, for example, there are calls to designate Black Lives Matter. Um, You could take a group that's politically controversial and designate as a terrorist group, um, even though violence is not the key to its agenda. And this is something that um, people on both the left and right have worried about, that the government could use this power in a way to suppress legitimate speech and legitimate organization, often to the detriment of disadvantaged communities that are more likely to, um, to have complaints with the government and less likely to have influence over the government. Um, in addition, uh, most of what uh, terrorist groups do is illegal under either federal or state law. Uh, and that's, of course, less relevant when it comes to foreign groups. So if there's a group overseas that's killing people or blowing stuff up, you're not going to be able to bring them to justice in the U.S. courtroom. On the other hand, if there is a group in Michigan doing the same thing, you can bring them to justice. So there are a host of laws, um, murder being an obvious one, uh, but also a range of conspiracy laws that the government has used successfully to go after groups that, in my mind, are basically domestic terrorist groups. But the laws themselves use other terms and have proven quite effective. Um, so those are some of the um, arguments. One is that it's not really necessary, and the other is that it can um, have a significant chilling effect on, le- on legitimate social organization.
2: Right, and so it seems that there are many reasons to that 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 the counterterrorism per se has not been used in the U.S. Would you say that uh, one of those?
0: I, I, I'm going to disagree with that characterization. Yeah, uh, which is that it still continues; it just uses different terms. So there have been massive efforts to decimate groups like the Ku Klux Klan, and many of them quite successful. And often it wasn't done in the name of counterterrorism. It was done in the name of, say, law enforcement or protecting vulnerable communities. Uh, But the effect was to really devastate some of these groups.
1: So I kind of wanted to um, really briefly touch on um, designating terrorist groups again, um, if that's okay. So I was just thinking when it comes to designating um, terrorist organizations, the US seems to have a lot of power in doing that because we have our own list. And so um, I guess my question is when it comes to designating um, organizations that have um, a more societal role in certain countries and um, designating them means preventing funding and aid and support to them. does that run, is there a problem factor in this where um, preventing support to a lot of these groups also means hurting the um, the populations that are original to that area?
0: So this shows up, for example, in the context of Hamas, where um, it is a group that has used terrorism repeatedly and widely against Israel, but it is also the de facto government of Gaza. And so when there are efforts to, labeled a terrorist group, which is a correct label, uh, it means that banks and other organizations are reluctant to provide services um, to Gaza because they're afraid that somehow their activities will end up supporting Hamas. And it's simply safer to avoid the problem altogether. But what that means is that it's harder to get services into places like Hamas. It's harder to get charitable, uh, excuse me, it's harder to get services into places like Gaza it's harder to get uh, charitable support for the people of Gaza who desperately need it. So there can be significant cost to this to the many innocent people who are uh, often indirectly a part of the community in which the terrorist group operates.
1: Has counterterrorism efforts evolved um, in, the, in the recent past so that um, its methods might be a little more directed at um, the organization itself and to prevent um, civilians from being as affected?
0: There have been efforts to try to minimize this problem, but it very much depends on where the group or organization is active. And so it's been less successful, I think, than many people would want, because the emphasis has been on stopping the terrorism more than the humanitarian side. I see.
1: And so to kind of move forward, in August, I know the Biden administration has pulled troops out of Afghanistan to end its so-called forever wars. Um... And while there's been successes, for example, last 20 years, the U.S. did not suffer um, a 9-11 scale attack. It also didn't completely fulfill um, all of the goals that the U.S. set out to fulfill. So my question is, after pulling out, should we expect to see a resurgence in terrorism in the region, as some people have um, talked about? Or should we expect to see our adversaries also taking advantage of our absence in Afghanistan?
0: The U.S. pull of Afghanistan is a win for jihadist groups. It's a victory they can claim, and the Taliban, with support from groups like al-Qaeda, defeated the United States militarily and the U.S. left, and that's inspirational. But it also helps them operationally. Uh, The Taliban have had long-standing ties to groups like al-Qaeda, and now they'll have more of a haven from which to operate. Uh, So it's clearly a benefit. Uh, there is a question of how much support the Taliban would give them for international terrorist attacks and especially attacks on the West. So it's possible the Taliban might say, you can help us in South Asia and we can work with the Pakistani government against India, but no attacks on the United States or Europe. Um, I think the honest answer is we simply don't know. Um, I can make arguments on either side, but I think we have to recognize that there's a lot of uncertainty here. And the Taliban itself may not have decided on a policy yet at this point. Uh, but clearly this is something to watch very carefully is the greater risk of terrorist attacks. And I would say, especially in the Middle East, uh, where which I think is at the greatest risk.
2: So how do we expect the international community, and this is a very broad question, but how do we expect the international community to, um, I guess, work with or not work with the Taliban going forward in Afghanistan?
0: I'm not sure how the international community will respond. Uh, the Taliban are going to be opposed to U.S. goals with regard to human rights. Uh, they've made clear they won't uh, cut off ties to al-Qaeda. So there's going to be strong reasons to oppose the Taliban. Um, uh, that said, there's a real question, which is if you want to get anything done in Afghanistan, uh, the Taliban are, is the government there. So uh, some governments may take a position of purity which is to say the Taliban is obnoxious and loathsome, and therefore we're not going to come near it. Others may try to be pragmatic to influence events, uh, but either approach is going to have problems. If you try to be pure, you're not going to be able to shape Afghanistan. If you try to engage the Taliban, you're going to find that they're at times violently opposed to U.S. and Western interests, um, and that they're highly unlikely to do what Western powers want them to do.
2: Right. So do you think there's going to be a divide between the countries that decide to work with the Taliban and the countries who like, definitively decide not to? Or do you think it will be a little bit more fluid?
0: Uh, I don't know. Um, I suspect it will be a bit more fluid. Um, there's also a question of how much people will care. So they may end up with different policies, but it might be the equivalent of having different policies with regard to Guinea-Bissau, where, except for the very small number of people working on that problem set, most people don't care or notice, and it's not an issue in the broader bilateral relationship. So there's a salience question, as well as I think many governments are still making up their mind as to how they're going to respond.
2: Right, that makes sense. And it's still early. So just to, I guess, bring the conversation back to um, talking about counterterrorism and the future of counterterrorism, I just want to know, what do you think that the future of counterterrorism will look like?
0: It's very hard to predict the future of counterterrorism because terrorism itself changes so frequently. And there are new groups that are constantly emerging. They're always trying out new methods. And a lot of counterterrorism is responsive. So to predict one, which is difficult, you have to um, do that first before you can predict the other. Uh, The one thing I would highlight though is that there's been um, dramatic growth in the ability to use surveillance and data in the name of counterterrorism. And so if you're watching the arrests of those who were involved in or alleged to be involved in the January 6th um, insurrection and storming of the US Capitol, um, I was someone who was personally appalled by what happened and hope these people suffer the appropriate penalties of the law. But that said, it is remarkable and at times disturbing the amount of data being collected on individuals and the ability to use that for law enforcement and intelligence purposes. And there's a huge amount of information we're all leaving in terms of digital breadcrumbs and governments have gotten much better at collecting that and putting it together.
1: And to kind of um, ask a follow up for the future of counterterrorism, do you think um, the increased use of currencies like cryptocurrencies, um, do you think that will have an effect on terrorist financing in the future?
0: I don't consider myself to be an expert on new currencies and how technology is changing these markets, but I'll just make a a broad statement, which is the ability of uh, governments to control anything, whether it's discourse or currency um, or weapons. um, When that is decreased, it offers opportunities for non-state actors. And sometimes that's a very good thing. We want dissidents to have more freedom and if they have more financial freedom or more freedom of expression, that's a wonderful thing for the spread of human rights and democracy. But Mm -hmm. that can also help bad actors. And so I think this is a possibility. But again, I want to stress I don't claim particular knowledge of cryptocurrencies.
1: Professor Byman, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast
0: today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.